Okay, here we are in Dalston at the Mediterranean British Cafe slash restaurant Evin, which uh, I think it would be an understatement to call close to home for my next guest, the children's author, poet and broadcaster, and incidentally, someone I grew up reading and who got me interested in the very idea of poetry. He is, of course, Michael Rosen. Michael, it's an honour, frankly. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, thank you. Perhaps you can tell us the sense in which this place is close to home for you and well, why you've chosen to meet here. Yeah, well, I lived in Dalston for 32 years. I'm not, I'm not here anymore. I've sort of uh, gone back to somewhere to do with my childhood, Muswell Hill. But for most of those 32 years, uh, this place was very, very important. So it's a little bit of nostalgia for, for me. And um, just behind us, you can see... Uh, she's just moved now, but the woman uh, working at the oven there, well, it's a kind of dome where they make what's called gerzlema, which are beautiful folded pancakes. We'll and, have to order some. Yes, indeed. And um, I, I've, I lived off those for, for a long time, particularly the spinach gerzlema. And um, it was always lovely to come here. And I think they make the best falafel, or falafel, depending how you pronounce it, in London. I, I sample falafel wherever I go, and uh, so Evin remains my top falafel joint. Quite a statement. Falafel yeah. is very popular in London. I've, I've been in it for many, many years, but I've never heard anyone say quite that about a particular place. I am totally committed to that viewpoint on falafel. Very dogmatic, actually. I'm sounding very political about falafel. Well, it's a political <laughs> day. Um, today is, of course, yes. the state visit from Donald Trump, but we've chosen, I think, to spend our time talking about something a bit more interesting, and that is your recent memoir, um, mm. which fans of yours will note bears a distinctly Rosanesque title, So They Call You Pisher. Yes. Uh, that struck me as cryptic at first, but then throughout the course of the book, I realized how little Yiddish I actually know. Yes. Um, for those like me, what does this sentence, So They Call You Pisher, actually mean? So uh, imagine my mother going for a job and suddenly she thinks I won't go for a job. It's going to be awful. I'm not going to get it. So she sits there going, there's no point. She says to my dad, Harold, there's no point in my going for the job. And then my father will then say, so they call you Pisha. In other words, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? The worst thing that could happen to you is they call you a swear word, which is Pisha, which sort of literally means pisser, but doesn't actually mean that. It means a nobody, a nothing. So he's saying to my mum, look, go for it. What's the worst thing that could happen? They could call you a nobody. And then you walk away, and that's the worst thing that's happened. So it's a very protective thing. It's actually quite a thing that you can wear as a badge. So they call you Pisha, meaning, well, I'll give it a go. And then what can happen? So it's a bit who dares wins. You've got to be in it to win it. Um, if you don't use it, lose it. It's any of these ideas, or even if it sticks and stones will break my bones. It's, it holds all those meanings in it. But, of course, the nice thing about it is, is this funny word, Pisha, which I just laugh at just to think about it. Because as, as with a lot of swear words and so on, the metaphor gets lost. You know, if we tell someone to F off, it's got nothing to do with effing, has it? So it, it, we, we use these swear words in very metaphorical ways. So, it, you know, pish has got nothing to do with pissing. It's just like a little a way of denigrating someone, of putting them down. So he's saying, so what if they put you down? Yeah, so? Shall we order? Yeah, let's. Let's go for that goslemi. I yeah, think that would be a yeah. great starter. Yeah, let's do that. Hello there. So we'll have the goslemi and the falafel starter. Very good. Had you always planned on writing the memoir, or did something unexpected push you to produce it? I thought that the kind of combined 
set, if you like, of my poems, that that was a sort of memoir. And I thought, it's all a bit kind of, sounds a bit modernist and pretentious, but that somehow or other people would sew these together and then know all they'd ever want to know about me. Why would they want to know anything else? Um, but then in the way these things sometimes happen, a publisher suggested, well, why don't you write a memoir? And I sort of resisted it to start off with and said, well, haven't I done that already? And he said, well, no. So he convinced me I hadn't. That was Leo Hollis at Verso Books. And so I sat down to write it. You moved around a lot as a kid, didn't you? Um, yeah, I mean, we were fairly stable in this flat in, um, in Pinner. Lovely coat. Thank for you very much. And a cup of tea for me. Thank you. Yes, Pinner being in Harrow. Yeah, that's right. It was uh, this rather uh, fairly safe northwest London suburb. And that's where I lived for the first 17 years of my life. Uh, then moved for three years or so to a bit further out to Rickmansworth. Um, and then ended up in Muswell Hill. So that was the home base. But then in holidays... Uh, we were very mobile. We used to camp all over Britain, all over uh, uh, various places in France, and then we travelled to Germany. So for the 50s, we were much more mobile than most of my friends who used to seem to go from Pinner to Broadstairs or to Devon and back, and that was it. And um, so, yeah, I had a, had a quite strong sense that my parents were quite adventurous and that seems to have stemmed from before the war when they were the only people they knew who went hitchhiking around France. I mean, that seemed like a, an incredible racy thing to do for two Jewish East Enders um, to suddenly decide to hitchhike around France in 1939. I don't think any of their friends did. So, yeah, I think I caught that sense of, well, go out and see what it's like from them. And in terms of choosing Evan as the place to meet, it was your mother's parents who lived just opposite us outside the window on Sandringham Road wasn't it? Exactly right Sandringham Road is down there and my mother's parents all through my childhood uh, lived there so I think as far as I can figure out they moved there from the late 30s I think they were there during the war. Your parents Harold and Connie were teachers and also resolute dissident communists what was it like being a a member of a household of communists during the early 50s and 60s. Yeah, How did that shape your perspective as a child? It's very total. Uh, if your parents are communists, it, it, you know, like when uh, I was growing up, it, it's partly mysterious. You just have a sense there's this other place, and it's not like school, it's not a hospital, it's not like church. There's this thing that your parents belong to, and given that it was during the Cold War, you also ha I also had the impression that it was a bad thing to be. But then I loved my parents, so how can it be bad? Is my mate saying, you know, if we had any sense, we'd bomb Russia. And you're thinking, oh, well, that's funny, because my parents think Russia's lovely. So you've got that going on. And then also th there's a sort of uh, way in which there's a sort of network that my parents would meet up with other commies. So they would meet up with the, the four other communists of Harrow, because there were none in Pinner, which made it quite strange, or go across to other parts of London, like Muswell Hill, where we ended up, where they had their old friends and they'd meet up. So there seemed to be something, it wasn't exactly a secret club, but a kind of, I think I had a sense of it being a sort of social, political club, full of all in-group jokes and sayings and people. And so they'd mention people and then people would laugh or they'd mention someone else and go all quiet. And these were the heroes and the martyrs and the victims or the people they despised. 
And meanwhile, it was all going on, as you say, in the slightly mad situation in Pinner, in which, I, I mean, I don't think there were any other commies, or hardly any. So, you know, how do you hold a communist branch meeting, which they did in our house, where there aren't any members other than them? So I think, as far as I can figure out, was they, they held branch meetings in the front room. You know, they'd say, go to bed, boys. And then we'd go halfway up the stairs and see who would be coming to the branch meeting, Tuesday night branch meeting, and sometimes nobody would come. And so my mum and dad would go into the front room, and you're thinking... Well, what do they do in there? How do you hold a branch meeting with, you know, your, how does your mum and dad hold a branch meeting? Does dad go, well, I think I'll chair the meeting. And mum might go, oh, no, I think I'll chair the meeting. And who's going to take the minutes? Oh, I'll take the minutes. So I often think of this as slightly kind of tragicomic, that there's this sort of mad thing going on where um, they, they carried the torch through until they gave it up. When I was uh, 11 in 1957, they said, that's it. We don't want to be members of this thing anymore. Um, took me and my brother into the front room, sat us down very solemnly. We are leaving the Communist Party. And I remember thinking, why are you telling us? You know, like as an 11-year-old, what does this mean? Uh, my brother was a little bit sharper than me, four years older, said, why? Ah, right, hadn't thought of that. Why? And then my father said, inner party democracy. Now, 11-year-olds, like, you know, the phrase inner party democracy doesn't mean a lot to 11-year-olds. So I remember sitting there thinking... What? What does that mean? And um, I did try and ask my father for the next, whatever it is, 60, 70 years, what inner party democracy meant. And um, he could never fully explain it to me, but I did find a booklet on it once which explained it all. Um, in fact, my father and mother walked out of the Communist Party at the same time as someone much more eminent than them, uh, the great historian Christopher Hill, the historian of the English Civil War. And... Um, he was sort of in the leadership of the people who walked out. So I think my f parents went with Christopher Hill rather than with the other great communist historian of the time, Eric Hobsbawm, who stayed. So they picked their historian, I often think, and went with Christopher. It's funny you say all of this because it comes through quite clearly in the book that you didn't gravitate instinctively as a child, nor as you grew up, towards conformity or any rigid codes of behaviour, uh, even though you were of a family who carried strong moral convictions. Um, do you think you were perhaps blessed with a rebellious mind, or was it in fact part of what it meant to be a communist? Did it sort of help you question mm. things? Mm. Well, the last thing you just said there, the questioning, I think that my parents gave me no question, that the right to question, the need to question, the imperative to question, my parents gave me by the bucket load, either by saying, question everything, be curious, or in practice. So, you know, my parents didn't listen to the radio, they interrogated it. So when the radio was on, yeah. I have this strong memory of my parents going, no, rubbish, it's not like that, as if the broadcaster could actually hear them. I mean, it was quite... Bizarre. I don't think any of my friends had that experience, but, you know, I can just see my parents, or in the car, when we finally did get a car and we had a rickety old radio in it, we'd be driving along somewhere and my father would be, and mother, carrying on a conversation with the radio as if that person was in the car, as if Mr. Grisewood and others of, of that ilk were sitting there, you know, of that era, uh, Dimbleby Senior and so on, and, and they would have this conversation, and I... I that's had a very powerful effect on me, that this stuff that we receive, you don't have to receive it. You must have also fostered a sense of us and them, though. Yes, I think much more. I had a stronger sense, not so much us and them, because I, I think my parents were very disrespectful in the best sense of the word. So I think, 
it was more that this person speaking is no better or worse than you are. Yes. So you have the right to say something. Um, now, what gave my parents that right? Now, you might say it was because they were educated. Well, actually, they weren't all that. My mum finished a school at 16. My father did get a degree, but he spent most of his time doing political stuff. So to his great shame, he only, in inverted commas, got a third-class degree. So he teacher-trained after that. So, But during my childhood, he then added on other degrees later. But I had the sense that his education, my parents' education, was political, that their education had been through reading and through engaged in weekly, daily debate in this very imperfect institution of the Communist Party. That's what gave them the strength to feel that, in a way, if you want to put a phrase around it, we are working-class intellectuals. We're entitled to question this. You write a lot in your poetry about your father. There is always the hypothetical, me and my dad, or me and my brother. And it's, yes. it never struck me when I grew up listening to your poems as autobiographical. I always thought that you were putting yourself in the position of a child. But now I can see, having read the memoir, that this is very much just oh, you yeah, sort yeah. of retelling these stories. Yes, indeed. Um, so here we have wow. the falafel. Beautiful. The best falafel in London. Yes, it is. It is the best falafel in London. Very good. Okay, moment of truth. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful, crispy outside, lovely, soft inside, absolutely brilliant. Some places, they don't make it quite as crispy, and I find sometimes a bit too much cumin, um, and sometimes they miss out that chopped parsley thing. So Crispiness in falafel is underrated, I think. Yeah, and also you've got to have the hummus, delicious. the hummus dip with it as well, you see, so you can smear a bit of hummus on the falafel. Uh-huh. Mm. If people hear me munching, um, it's only because I'm enjoying it so much the perfect gozlemer the perfect falafel there was the education you received at home from your parents and then there was the education you received outside the home and a lot of the book deals with the alienation you felt about having to learn certain things in a certain way that didn't make sense to you or seemed pointless partly because you had such strong tutors at home what i found interesting was that for such a hyper-educated child, you never completely rejected school and always seemed to want to do well. What kept you engaged and interested? Mm, That's a good puzzle, and I'm not sure I've got the answer because exactly as you say, I had this huge, some people call it cultural capital now, the the writer uh, Bourdieu calls it habitus, that means the sort of home education that you have informal however it comes through holidays through an uncle who reads to you or whatever so I had it my parents my brother and then these friends of my parents who were quite often either communists or ex-communists who would we'd go on holiday with or I'd go and stay with so I had this sort of circle of educating experiences and these incredible holidays these camping holidays and my parents pursued this kind of curiosity bug, if you like, so that wherever we were, they would go, let's find out about this place. And so they were the ultimate tour guide. Let's find out whether William the Conqueror walked here or let's go and fight. let's walk into this church and go, oh, my goodness, look at this font. Or I wonder what bird that is. It looks like a sparrow, but is it a sparrow, you know? And, I mean, it's quite hard to describe the intensiveness of it. I mean, it was kind of... My brother... Sometimes he kind of, in his moments of despair, he'll say, what, what, what was it about them? I mean, it was like all the time, wasn't it? It was so full on. Yeah, so it's a pool out of which you emerge, put on your school uniform, 
and go to school. And then when you get to school, this stuff that happened at school felt all ter- in one way terribly familiar. You know, when they said, here is a, an oxbow lake, and I think, oh, that's all right, well, we saw one of those on holiday. So when you say, why did I sort of carry on with it? One reason is because it was familiar and so it felt, I, I felt at home with it. But the other one I have to say is that there is an anxiety in my parents that I can see now that, but like, you know, anyone of an immigrant family, I, I'm generalising massively here, there is an anxiety that your children may not succeed in, the, in this country, whatever that means, that you may not get on, and that if you don't get on, you'll end up like the, and then you go dot, 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 and then in their case it was the Michelsons. Who were the Michelsons? I didn't know who the Michelsons were. They were this mythic family, poor family, who existed way back in the myth of the 1930s in the East End. And I'd, I'd say to them, who were the Michelsons? And mum would say, oh, you don't want to know. The Michelsons were so poor. And then she'd finish that sentence with, there were bedbugs in their beds, or they never had a job, or they had no food on the table, or something like that. So this idea that if you didn't study, you might end up in this sort of mythic, terrible place called the Michelsons, that I think, I mean, I haven't checked with my bro, but I, th- I think that was quite powerful and also explains their anxiety. Is it fair to say that while you had always read and read widely, theatre was your first big love? Mm. Yeah, um, I think I did. I think I was passionate about wanting to be an actor from about the age of about nine or ten. I remember I, I was just looking last night with my wife. Oh, look, let's, I'm, I'm in Stratford-on-Avon uh, doing a gig coming up soon. And I said to my wife, I said, hey, why don't we go and see a play um, in the evening and stay overnight? Let's make it a weekend. Flicked open the RSC Royal Shakespeare website and a great wave of feeling came over me. I mean, it was really, really emotional. I looked at it and I saw these pictures of the, of the actors and I had that wave of feeling that I actually wanted to be an actor in the RSC and I had that feeling from about 14 or 15 and I, I looked at that and I, I was back 60 years to that feeling wow and yeah it was a passion it's just as people have passions to be footballers pop singers or whatever I wanted to be that I mean it panned out I clearly wasn't good enough so you know I had to learn that so they call you Pisher yeah I kind of had to learn that um but yeah it was it was a passion I I went to acting classes at a lovely little theatre called Questers in West London um and devoted vast amounts of my time doing takeoffs and sketches with my mates at secondary school. Um, I somehow, and then I followed the Beyond the Fringe lot and thought, oh, maybe I could become like one of them. Mm. So there was an unofficial education going on. The storyteller, performer, sketch writer, maker, actor person that was going on all through from, I'd say, about 12 onwards. Yeah. Remind me what age you were when you wrote Moth, your first poem, and, mm. and how did that come about? I was doing, doing, it's very schooly, doing D.H. Lawrence's poems as part of a collection called The Pageant of Modern Verse, I think it was called, um, for what was the predecessor to GCSEs called O-Levels. 
and I was actually doing them with my dad at home because he decided that school wasn't a good enough education for so he actually taught me my English literature at home for my O-level, right. funny in itself. Gave you an alternative reading of The Merchant of Venice, That's which right. would have been very important to him, I'm sure. You can uh, perhaps elaborate on that if you wish. Yeah, well, I mean, alternative readings, it's, it goes on, doesn't it? It's, oh, yes, indeed. I mean, he was the one who pointed out to me that, that it looks as if Shylock's the baddie, but then if you look a bit more closely, well, the others don't behave any better. That all our sort of as a a Western non-Jewish audience, and half of me in a sense is like that, because that's how I was brought up in this Western culture at school. Uh, That's what drags you towards them, you know, and Portia gives this wonderful speech about mercy, but it pans out to be a piece, an act of gross hypocrisy. But uh, on the D.H. Lawrence with that one, so we were studying D.H. Lawrence's poems, and I can remember the poem Bat and Snake, and I think Man and Bat, And I just thought this was wonderful. Here was a voice that was very clear. It does two things, the voice. It tells the story of what happens, but it also comments on it. So it's in two time frames. So I was doing this, and then you're in it, but then also saying, as it were, what a chump I was, or how scared I was, or whatever. And that dual narration, that double narrative voice is is great. So yeah, a moth came into my bedroom, and I suddenly related it to the bat in D.H. Lawrence and his sort of fear and disgust with the bat. And I thought, oh, I've got fear and disgust of this moth. I related the experience in the poem. I like that strong personal voice and the way how unafraid D.H. Lawrence is in writing with that voice. He doesn't just talk about the bat. It's me and the bat sort of thing. And I like that. I uh, call it egocentric, call it egotistical or whatever. But, you know, poetry can be that ego. You know, it, it favours egotism if you want it to. And so I wrote my first poem about the moth, but I didn't call it the moth, because just like D.H. Lawrence calls it bat and snake, that modernist thing of dropping mm. the article, I called my poem moth. And I felt, oh, yes. So there we are. That was my first poem. I was very proud of it. Very proud and then of it. being confronted again with your influence, um, a student, uh, how many, I don't know how many years later, but yes. you recount how a student wrote a poem <laughs> yeah. based on your poem, based on D.H. Lawrence's. I uh, think they actually not. I didn't rewrite it. I think they just copied it out because it was a trick. The old school <laughs> friend of mine, we'd been working in the holidays on a building site and I'd got him into trouble. So then he turned it, became a deputy head. I didn't know. Years later, he invited me to his school. It must be 30 years later, 20 years later. I don't know. And, you know, we chatted about old times and then he took me into the classroom and uh, there's this girl saying, you know, I've written a poem, Mr. Rosen, would you like to see it? And I started reading and I thought, hmm, looks a bit like D.H. Lawrence. So I said, this looks like a bit like D.H. Lawrence. And then my friend Mick goes, "Uh, does it look a bit familiar to you? And I went, yeah. And he said, yeah, that's because you wrote it. And he whipped it out, a copy of the school magazine and he got the girl to copy my poem out. And he said, I waited 30 years for that. So, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, when I wrote that poem the first time, it was a sort of pastiche, which I often tell people who want to write. I said, it's nothing wrong with imitating. Give it, start with imitating. You'll never imitate it word for word. It'll be like, where did Bob Dylan start? He started with Woody Guthrie and he started with English folk song. And then he suddenly got loads of other, but some of the first songs you'd be hard pushed to, you know, hear a clear difference between him and Woody Guthrie some of his first songs he thought oh this idea of the singer-songwriter you know you can take some of Bruce early Bruce Springsteen and you think is that Bob Dylan singing 
there's nothing wrong with that. You learn. It's one of the ways. I won't say it's the way. It's one of the ways to learn what it feels like to put stuff down and then be relaxed about it. Other voices will emerge and merge and evolve. You were going into medical practice at one point. (laughs) You were going to be a doctor. Could you tell us about how you eventually decided resolutely you were going the other way? So there's two breaking points. The first breaking point is, oh, I'm going to be languagey and acty and and all that. That's the kind of person I am. And making the lethal, terrible, fatal mistake of saying to my parents, and I always tell people, if you've got Jewish parents, never do this. Okay, it's just a joke, just a stereotype. But anyway, is never say that you like biology. Okay, because that was the lethal mistake I made. I sat there after my O-levels and said, do you know... I quite liked doing biology. It's a shame I'm going to do English, French and history in the sixth form and have to drop biology. And my parents went, biology? Biology? You could be a doctor. And so from nowhere, this thing suddenly was dangled in front of me that I could be a doctor. And I didn't know at the time, that. and as I talk about this in the book, my parents must have had some kind of league table in their heads that being a teacher was good. Below that was an actor. Who would be an actor? Michael, don't be an actor. Above that, teacher, good job. You pass on knowledge and wisdom. Above that, a doctor. Doctor's wonderful. You're using knowledge. You go anywhere. You can mend a leg. Do what you want. Higher status than that, more important in their mind, a Jewish doctor. A Jewish doctor, you're using whatever it is that is your Jewishness and you're sharing it with the rest of the world instead of it just confined in somewhere or another from within the Jewish community for my parents, so-called emancipated Jews, take it somewhere else, mend a leg anywhere. But there was one category even higher than that, a Jewish communist doctor. That was top of the league. Jewish communist doctor, wow. Well, if you're that, then you're not only using the knowledge, you're not only using the Jewishness and breaking out of, the, of, the, of, the, of just purely thinking in sort of your, your cultural terms, if you like, but you're taking your politics as well. So when I said that word, biology, I think it went, and they thought, our son, he could be a Jewish communist doctor. So, oh dear. So it's fair to say, based on what you're saying, that they had left the Communist Party, but still identified themselves as communist, and that they still felt that whatever good you were going to do in the world would be through your communist upbringing nonetheless i think yeah it may not have been as explicit as that but yeah i'm i'm beginning even as you're telling me i'm nodding yes that's right so anyway on the medicine so i took a long and very unhappy route through various forms of doing medical studies until i thought i can't go on with this it's, it's just not me it didn't feel like my suit of clothes and so i just thought can I change? And so I had to wangle and wheedle in a variety of tricks, uh, one by following in my brother's footsteps to Oxford University and then uh, finally convincing his boss at the university that it would be a good idea to change. And I think um, because my father so admired his boss that his boss sort of summoned him into his room and said, I think Michael would quite like to change course. And the old man's like switched overnight. I mean, it was just breathtaking. One day, virtually, he was going, no, over our dead body, will you change course? And the next, he was like pleading forgiveness. I mean, it was tragic, really. I mean, I can see him sort of 
sort of embracing me and saying, I'm so, so sorry that we made you do this. So whatever it was that my dad's boss said made him flip completely. And he, he, he you know, made it possible for me to switch and start all over again. So two years of medical studies were sort of down the pan and I started university all over again and did another three years. So it was a real alignment of the stars. Alignment yeah. of the stars, I like that. That's nice, say Shakespeare, that's Edmund in uh, King Lear mocking. You know, he says, I'm paraphrasing, you know, why should I rely on the disposition of the stars for whether uh, I am who I am? You know, it's a, it's a wonderful speech from the world's worst villain. It's great. He's a horrible villain, but he does this wonderful rational speech about should I somehow or other leave myself to the goatish disposition of my ancestors or something? It's quite a funny speech. I've, I'm badly paraphrasing it, but it's great speech. It sounds very appropriate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So politics was always present in your life, but studying English at Oxford during the early 60s was what really made you see the political urgency of literature. This is when your understanding of literary style and structure was able to channel conviction about class, about the injustices of the Vietnam War. Tell us about this shift. Well, I guess uh, it didn't feel strongly like a shift. It's just Oxford was such a sort of traditionalist place at that time. You began the English course with Beowulf, the Anglo-Saxons, Old English as they call it, and you came through to 1900 and stopped. So there we were, 65, 66, 67, 68 years later, and no literature had happened in the previous 67 years. This is student, student revolt time, 1967, 68, 69, where we were throwing everything up to be questioned. So why are we studying this? Why do you study English and not English and history? Why can't you study English and art? English and physics. Why, why do we have to f study what they tell us to study? Why can't you come in with a project and say, I'd like to study this and the project be supervised? So we kept raising these educational questions and it, and it had a snowball effect because you could then start questioning, well, how's a university structured? Who decides these things? Why are students excluded from the academic board? I mean, who's, who's, who's the education for? Is it for the people who run the university or for the students? Um, I mean, isn't it supposed to be for us? Because... Or, or are, we, are, we, are we supposed to just bow at your feet, kneel at your feet, and just take it because you know best? But you don't know best because it's your generation who's led us into the Vietnam War. That's what the Americans said, you know, and, and our lot were trogging along behind. So what do you know that's better than we know? All these things were coming up for grabs, and it was very exciting. And I think I've been influenced by that for the rest of my life, that these issues of what you study, where you study how you study are crucial issues to this very second um, because again and again authority demands that you study in the way we tell you because we know better and this institution is structured in the best possible way and I think that's all up for grabs I think we question that because there are bigger issues than what you study. What you study is related to the society that you live in. In other words, there are issues of democracy involved. Yeah. Based on everything we've spoken about, it's, uh, it's no wonder that you hold unapologetic convictions about how we teach children from a young age in the UK. I'd love to hear about how you would go about reforming uh -huh. the education system in Britain. What would you do to change things? The crucial thing is change the structure. What you have to do is stop running education as if it's the playground for the Secretary of State for Education. I mean, who is this person? I mean, quite often it's a person with no knowledge of education whatsoever. 
It's extraordinary. I see the present Secretary of State, he regularly makes statements about children, childhood, education. I mean, the only education he knows about is his own, which was within a very specific formation. Guess what? He went to Oxford, did PPE, as most of them do, philosophy, politics and economics, and they sound forth about what education should be. So not only is that illegitimate, but it's also the power structure of it being a diktat from the centre affects the way education itself, the kind of education that goes on. So I, I mean, magic wand or whatever, you have to create democratic structures that run education. You have to create teachers' councils. You have to incorporate researchers within that. And you have to include also the public in some form or another, whether that's through local authority representation or whatever. And there has to be constant dialogue, constant replenishment, in order for that to work. The idea of running education without consensus of the practitioners seems to me a, a very, it seems to be a folly, and it leads to all kinds of authoritarian attitudes, behavior, and also random acts of totalitarianism, opening and closing schools, particularly closing schools at a whim, uh, refusing to listen to parents who don't want another form of school there, um, laying down the law about what university courses should or shouldn't run. I mean, there's a, like a, a weird authoritarian reflex that runs through education from top to bottom. The closing of Sure Start centres for little ones for nursery, the real decline in adult education, all these are acts of diktat and no democratic, core democratic base and the idea that education is for you, therefore you can make of it and be able to make of it what is right for you in the light of the best things known and said. Of course, you, you do that, but it must be by consent. You know, we live in a democracy. You want education for democracy with democracy. I'll go back to your university days uh, uh, for yeah. a moment because you rubbed shoulders then with a clutch of people who would become titans in the political and media world, two among whom, of course, being the Hitchens brothers, Christopher and Peter. What do you remember most vividly about the political camaraderie and chemistry of personalities this big in what I imagine was already such a catalytic place to be young and inspired? I thought Chris was wonderful. Um, he was provocative, he was funny, he was unpredictable. Um, uh, he loved insulting me, and I enjoyed it the way he did it. And how did he uh, do that? Oh, he would just take the Mickey about either my nose was always in a book, or he would call me a Stalinist because my he knew my parents were, had been communists. All this stuff, and and uh, you know, we I, I think we got on very well. Um, I mean, Chris, in some ways, it was it was his humour that that he could be funny about politics in a way that many of us found quite difficult that we'd have humour over on one side and then you'd go over to politics and stop being funny whereas Chris because he was so witty could somehow or other make I mean it's quite hard to, to describe but because he could be ironic and mocking it then became quite funny I mean people saw this in him later I disagree with him fundamentally over the Iraq war um, we had a 20 second tiff uh, we met somewhere I've forgotten where and we kind of waved to each other, sort of acknowledging that we had taken up completely opposite sides in the matter. And he made a cynical comment. I said, oh, wow, Chris, you've changed a bit. Physically, I meant. And he said, ha, ha you haven't. <laughs> and I said it all, didn't it? 
So have you any events coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks, couple of months that you'd like to uh, inform us of? Yeah, indeed. Uh, let's have a see what we've got. Yeah, on the road. Oh, I'm going to be at Stratford-on-Avon on June the 22nd. Two family poetry events. All welcome for them. So that's Stratford-on-Avon June 22nd. June 14th, I'm in Loudham near Nottingham. That's a public event as well, the Loudham Festival. June the 29th, Match Women's Festival. That's because of the great Match Women's Strike uh, at the the name of Annie Byzant, some people will know from the East End. This was one of the first time unskilled women workers went on strike. And Mm. this is their festival. That's at Bow Arts Bow in London. Very interesting. Celebration of the wonderful Judith Carr, who died recently, aged 95. This is organised by Jewish Book Week. This is at JW3 on the Finchley Road in London, July the 1st. Everybody welcome to that one. For those who aren't familiar, who was Judith Carr? Judith Carr. She wrote the Mog book. She wrote The Tiger Who Came to Tea, famously, and also When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit. The moment you say those titles, many people will be familiar. They're little hearts. All our little hearts. My little heart. Did a little tremble when I even said Tiger, remembering reading it to my oldest lad, who is now 43. That was my pre-Rosen reading were all those books. Excellent. Very good. I'm in Bradford on July the 4th talking about, well, in part, talking about So They Call You Pisher. And one or two other things before the summer. Rochdale on July the 13th. That's a public event talking about poems. July the 15th, I'm in Daunt's Bookshop, South End Green Hampstead. Evening event for So They Call You Pisher. Can't even say it now. And on July the 17th, I'm in Hausman's Bookshop, Caledonian Road, King's Cross, talking around a book I did called Reading and Rebellion, which is a book about radical children's literature, edited by three of us. I say I did that book, I didn't. Three of us did it. Kimberly Reynolds, Jane Rosen, no relation of me, and we're talking at the Hausman's Bookshop. So that takes us up to August. So there we are. Yeah, so quite busy. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) Excellent. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jack.